A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this Malka episode, which happens to be a milestone episode for this podcast, the 150th um, episode. It has been sponsored by a listener in honor of um, Gavriel Shuster and Davi Safir, who were were my uh, chavruses back when they were in Eretz Yisrael, and they encouraged me in the beginning to um, start this podcast. Uh, Gabriel Schuster is the uh, author of the acclaimed Sefer on Erevin, Tik and Shleime. And Davi Safir, speaking of him, so we also have a special surprise for the 150th episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and I want to go on record as saying that you definitely will want to check out the Pesach Mega issue of Mishpacha magazine. You'll for sure want to buy it, and I think you'll probably want to subscribe to the magazine. And that's uh, um, also a thank you to all you listeners for us reaching this milestone of 150 episodes. And this is a surprise for you all. So check it out and uh, enjoy. I really hope, you know, Commemorating this uh, milestone comes at a very challenging time for everyone, so I really hope everyone is healthy and well and safe and stays that way and really hope things get back to normal uh, very soon. Um, I want to start off, you know, the Malava Malka episode we're going to have for a yard site. It was just uh, now on Friday. Erev Shabbos was the yard site, the 51st yard site of a very special man, Rabari Levin. Um, who was known as the Tzaddik of Yerushalayim, was known as the Rabbi of the Prisoners. He was known by a lot, as a lot of things. And um, and it's very apropos and appropriate that we should uh, do the 150th about him. He was a special man. In fact, this Friday yard site corresponds exactly how the year that he passed away. It was He died on a Friday afternoon, and it was Erev Shabbos Haggadah, like this year, and he, in fact, asked that no hespedim be said for him when he dies. And he dies on a Friday afternoon, and it's during Nisan, right before Pesach. And not only did they not have time, but also the time of year was not to give hespedim. So he got his wish exactly as he wanted. And I want to start off with a story 
that I heard from a relative of mine. I was speaking to her, an elderly elderly woman, um, who grew up religious, grew up in a Yerushalmi home in Yemen Moshe, and she still uh, lives in Yemen Moshe. And she, she like you know, all of her siblings, like most of the people of her generation, left uh, Yiddishkeit, secular, and she talked about her brother, who um, her brother Michael, who um, died fighting, defending Yemen Moshe during the War of Independence. He also had started off in Yerushalmi home and learned in the acclaimed and famous Eitzchayim Yeshiva um, in Yerushalayim. And he also left a traditional Yiddishkeit. And when he was killed in the line of battle, the one who showed up to his Levaya and gave a Hespid was Rabari Levin. And she told me this. I asked her, why did Rabari Levin come? He's someone who left that path, who abandoned tradition, what made, what brought him to come? And she said, what do you mean? Of course, Rabari Levin never missed a Leviah like that. Rabari Levin said, Erz von Unzera, he's one of ours. He was a Talmud of Eitz Chaim. He learned by us, and he's a student of Eitz Chaim, and I'm here. This is my place, and he came to the Leviah. And that really gives an insight to who he was, and it's quite a famous personality, Simcha Raz's um, biography of him at Tzadik in our time is a classic, and most people have read it, and if you haven't, you definitely should. He was one of the most beloved individuals by the most diverse uh, cross-section of society, even non-Jewish society. We're talking about within Jewish society for sure, and he's really a fascinating personality. And what's most interesting about him, Rabbi Levin, is that he comes from the world of the Litvak Lithuanian Torah aristocracy. And his background, you know, he studied in the Slutsk Yeshiva. He later on learned in Valozhin, not the real Valozhin. He was seven years old when Valozhin closed, but in the renewed Valozhin under Rebbefol Shapiro. He learned by Rebbe Zalman in Slutsk, and then later when he was the Mashgiach in Eitz Chaim, he was working in the same institution as, as, as Rebbe Zalman again, as his former Rebbe, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Eitz Chaim. He had studied for a period of time as a young bacher in Minsk by the famous yeshiva in the Maskila Eisen Shul of Reb Shleimah who was also a fascinating personality. The yeshiva in Minsk was one of the greatest feeders into Slabotka at the time, a place where Yaakov Kamenetsky, Baron Cutler, Reuven Grzovsky, and others of Minsk started off by Reb Shleimah in the Maskila Eisen Shul, and then later learned in Slabotka. Sir Bari Levin learned there also in Minsk. He did not learn in Slabotka. He moves to Eretz Yisrael when he's about 20 years old, uh, during, you know, ironically, the second Aliyah, although I don't know if he would have identified it as such, uh, with that, you know, type of uh, culture and characteristic. And uh, when he's here in Eretz Yisrael, he marries the daughter of a Rav in Yerushalayim, Rav David Shapiro, who, again, the Shapiro family, this is the son of Rav Chaim Yaakov Shapiro, who was a dying in Yerushalayim. Rav Chaim Yaakov Shapiro was the brother of his Rebbe from Valazhin, Rav Rafal Shapiro. In other words, he was the son of Rav Label Kovner, the famous rabbi of Kovner, Rav Label Shapiro, a, a, a family deep-rooted in the Kovner-Lithuanian aristocracy. Another daughter of Rav David Shapiro marries Rav Pesach Frank, who's the Rav Yerushalayim, also a Kovner family. 
he proceeds to go on and get smicha from the great personalities of Yerushalayim, Rav Chaim Berlin, right, and it's his son, Rav Shmuel Salant, Rav Kook, who he was very close with. He later on marries off his children into the, you know, important Lithuanian families of Yerushalayim. One of his sons-in-law was famously Rebel Yashiv. And Rebel Yari Levin was close with Rebel Yashiv's grandfather, Rebel Shleim Yashiv, who was the great Kabbalist, the Leshem Shavoy Um Another daughter marries Rebel Lazar Plachinsky, who was a grandson of the Altar Slobodka. Um, Rebel Shmuel married another daughter. You're talking about, in every way you look, he was someone who was deep-rooted in the Lithuanian Torah world. He liked getting a connection. He loved getting connection with great Torah leaders of his time. He met the Chavetz Chaim a couple of, on a couple of occasions when he was in Yerushalayim. He got to know the great uh, students of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, Rabbi Blazer, and Rav Tali Amsterdam, who were living in Yerushalayim at the end of their lives. That's one side of him. That's where he came from. And yet, how is he known to history? Like I said before, as the Tzaddik of Yerushalayim, you know, a Tzaddik of our, in our time is the name of the book. And he's also known as the Rabbi of the Prisoners. In other words, he's a man who belongs to the masses, to the simple people. So he comes from so high, and yet he was so simple, so real, so warm, and so much with everyone else, with the regular people of Yerushalayim and anywhere else that he was. And that's what, that was so amazing about him, how he came from that world and was able to really relate to every single person, no matter who he was and where he came from and what his background and what his, his life was about. And that, that I think in, in, is the essence of who Rabari Levin was. He was the mashgiach of the, uh, in Eitz Chaim, but really for the younger division, for the, for the cheder students, for the young elementary school students in Eitz Chaim. He used to, he lived in Nachlaot, before it was hip, you know, before he wasn't a hipster. It was, it was a regular neighborhood in Yerushalayim back in those days. And he would walk from Nachlaot, you know, through the Machna Yehuda Shuk, to the Zare Chamashul, which still exists on Rechov Yafo in Yerushalayim. And he would daven at the famous Vasikin Minyan at sunrise every day. And then across the street was Eitz Chaim on Rechov Yafo next to the Shuk. And, um, you know, he, uh, in the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva, there was a yard in front of, of the Yeshiva, which was a novelty in those days for the kids to play, which, you know, again, was a pretty forward progressive thinking for Yerushalmi Cheder. And he would watch from his office window the kids playing, and sometimes he would see a child who had torn shoes and would need would need uh, new shoes. But he wouldn't want to shame the child by calling him in and saying, "Hey, I see your parents are too poor to get you new shoes, so here's some money. Go buy yourself some shoes." That's not how you would do it. He would call in the boy and test him on whatever the kid was studying in his class, Mishnayos or Gemara, and he would ask him some questions, and he would say, you passed the test. So as a prize, there's a special fund in yeshiva to give prizes to outstanding students, and here we're going to present you with a new pair of shoes. And he would do it without shaming the child, and he would uh, take care of them. Um, he um, he used to, in in the prisons, he visited originally, you know, he's famous as the rabbi of the prisoners, people, you know, associated with visiting the political prisoners in the Russian compound prison under the British mandate, the underground members of the Haganah and the Irgun. It's not how it started. He starts off by visiting 
the prison as a prison, before there were political prisoners. In other words, it was criminals, thieves, even murderers. And uh, that's how he starts off. And not only that, that's how he ends off. What's much less famous about his career as rabbi of the prisoners is that he continues to be the rabbi of the prisoners after the founding of the State of Israel. When it's not the British mandate, when there are no political prisoners, when there's no members of the underground, but he continues until the 1950s. And he's still the chaplain of the prison. He's still going there every Shabbos when it's back to being criminals again. So he starts off visiting the criminals, and he ends off visiting the criminals, and in between there's also the period of time where it's criminals and political prisoners, members of the underground. So, so you know, he, he, uh, you know, he eventually he starts off as a volunteer. You know, Rav Cook got him the official appointment from the British uh, as the as the official prison chaplain at no pay. Rabbi Levin refused to take any any pay for it. He also used to visit hospitals. Not only that, he would even visit leper hospitals. There was a leper. A hospital for those afflicted with leprosy in Beis Lechem, right outside Yerushalayim, where most of the inmates, most of the patients there were were Arabs. And he would go visit there and take care of the, the few Jewish patients that were there. And um, he was he was all over. He used to give also, um, he helped couples with Shalom Bias, with marital issues and questions and, you know, um, helping them with their marriage and advice and insight and he would do, take these couples in at late hours of the night. And people asked him why would he would do it so late, tell them to come earlier. And he would say, they're ashamed to come early. They don't want anyone to see them in the streets, that they're coming to me for marriage advice, because then everyone will know that their marriage is on the rocks. And I don't want them to stop coming. So if they're only going to come late at night, then I'll allow them to come late at night. In fact, uh, I remember when I was engaged, so there were all types of options for chassan classes and marriage and Shalom Bayes and building a Jewish home in the Mir Yeshiva where I was then, and I took all of them because you know I wanted to get all you know all the all the advice, and uh, one of the ones who gave was Rabbi Yaman Finkel, and the Mir is known as Rabbi Yaman Atzadik. He's actually an Anakal, a great grand uh, descendant of Rabbi Levin. His his grandfather was a Yidlevich, who was you know married to the Levins, and he told us uh, when when I was a chassan when I was engaged. He told us the famous thing from his grandfather, Bari Levin. He said that he once went to the doctor with his wife, and he said to the doctor, Her foot hurts us. And he was saying how he was, his, the, you know, the obvious point is, is that he was saying how it hurts us. It hurts both of them because her foot is hurting, and that's how it is as a couple, is that you're close, and everything that hurts one should hurt the other. Rabbi Yaman pointed out something very wise about Rabbi Levin. He said, if someone would come into the doctor and say, our foot hurts us, then he's a fool. I mean, it's not your foot, it's her foot. The idea was that Rabbi Levin recognized that it's her foot, you know, that his wife is another person, and it's her foot that hurts. It's not our foot. You know, you might want to say that someone would go even more extreme and consider it that it was so so identified with the pain that it's that it's our foot that hurts us. No, it's her foot, but the pain is shared by both. And that's something that was the exemplary marriage that he himself had, and Derby Yaman was advising us to incorporate that in ours as well. Um, before Merkaz Harav, and I said Rabbi Levin was very close with Rav Kook. Rabbi Levin, uh, Rav Kook was the Masada Kedushin at his children's marriages, Rabbi Yashiv and the other ones. He remained very close with him until Rav Cook died in 1935. 
Um, Rabbi Levin arrived in, in, in the country in 1905, quite early on. So um, they had a very close relationship. And, um, and Rav, uh, so before Merkaz Rav had their own buildings, so Rav Ari arranged for Rav Cook to daven with his close students, with his close Talmidim, in the small uh, shul-based medrash of Eitz Chaim of the elementary school. The elementary school-based medrash wasn't used on the Yom Neirayim. So he arranged for Rav Cook to be able to daven there. So he had an interesting minion there. Um, the Nazir, the Rav HaNazir, Rav David Koyen, was the Makri, was the one who called out the Takiyas for the Shaifer. Rav Cook himself was the Baltake, was the one who blew the Shaifer. And Rabbi Levin was the Chazan. So he had a, a nice, a nice uh, trio there leading the pack uh, for, for the davening in Yom and the Raim. I heard once, I think it was, is either Ramesh Sfineria or one of the other told me that Rav Cook said that uh, Rabbi Levin, who's the, remained the Chazan at Merkaz Arab for decades, for many years, so he influenced many of the great uh, Rashi Yeshiva and rabbis in the national religious community in Israel in his Nusach of Davening and the way he Davened and the style that he Davened. Rabbi Levin told him that the way that he Davened came from his years in Valazhin. So the Nusach of, of Yomim Neiroyim of Valazhin is in the Dati Lumi community scattered around Israel today. So that's also just a point of history uh, that to take note of. Now, he, it, it, speaking of that Yom Neiroyim, on Yom Kippur that year, so he asked, Rabbi Levin asked his wife to take care of the young six-year-old Sharyash of Koyin, who later became Rev Sharyash of Koyin, the rabbi of Haifa, who just died a couple of years ago, the Rav HaNazir of David Koyin's son. He said that the, the Nazir is a mystic and he's a holy Jew and he's totally in a different realm and a different dimension on Yom Kippur and he doesn't, he's not in this world, but his poor kid is a six-year-old child and he needs to eat, he needs to be taken care of. So he asked his wife to go take care of the young Sharyash of Koyin. You know, he, he, like I said it before, in his p- capacity as the rabbi in the prison, he took care of the criminals in jail, not just political prisoners. He used to bring these murderers and thieves. He used to help them put on tefillin. Um, he, uh, had tried to get them to daven. There was, um, there was a political prisoner, um, later on when the British started putting political prisoners, 1930s, into the jails in the Russian compound. Which, which today is a museum. It's right next to the city hall in Yerushalayim, not far from the Kaisel, an interesting place. Um, so there was a guy there that was never religious. And Rabbi Aryeh Levin, who came on Shabbos, that's when he came to lead the davening for them Shabbos morning, he brought there this guy, this political prisoner that week. He had, um, he had a, he was on, he had been convicted at trial by the British and sentenced to death. And that week, his death sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. So Rabbi Levin wisely, an incredible move, he brings tefillin with him on Shabbos morning to this fellow, realizing that this person has a high emotional state, and he says, you know, and he says, I brought you tefillin on Shabbos. You have to understand, this is a way to, this is a way to celebrate. Promise me that you will start wearing Tefillin is the only opportunity that he had to bring him a tefillin. Rabbi Levin was not able to go there during the week, and he felt that it was important to get this guy to be able to start wearing tefillin. And the guy, just to make Rabbi happy, actually started wearing the tefillin. The, when he would come in, 
when Rabbi Levin would come in, a, the British officer on on duty would would salute him. He was uh, respected even by the uh, the British guards there. Um, he would talk to everyone. He remembered everyone's name, their relatives' details. He would schmooze with them. He didn't just do the service and leave. Um, he he. Uh, there was one one prisoner there who was a communist, and that was actually why he was in jail. He was arrested for communist activity. I guess that was the original political prisoners were there not because of underground activity, but could be there for communist activity. And he didn't come. He was one of the only ones who didn't come to Davin Shabbos morning. He was a communist. He was anti-religious. He was an atheist. So Rabbi went to him. He went to visit his cell after the davening. And Rabbi said, what's your name? How are you? And the guy said something. His name is something Lipkin. Rabbi says to him, one second, Lipkin, are you related to Rabbi Stroll Salanter? Rabbi Stroll Salanter, his name was Lipkin. So he said, yeah, actually, he was my great-great-grandfather. I said, wow, you're an anical of Rabbi Stroll Salanter. He starts schmoozing with him, and he actually warmed up to him, and he started to change his ways and attend davening on Shabbos. Um, he, this, this prison appointment of his wasn't just a, a, um, a thing of compassion that he would, you know, schmooze with them and be there for them. He actually fought for their rights. He, originally, the wards were mixed. They were together with, with um, Arab prisoners, he fought to get them separate, that the Jews should have their own ward. They should be separate. He fought for them, the right for them to get kosher food for the British. The British officer asked him to cite his sources in Shulchan Aruch, where, that, they, that they should get separate dishes and meat and milk and all that. And Rabbi Levin prepared a whole, a whole chabura for him, basically, showing him how in Jewish law this is required. And then they provided it. So he got them kosher food. So you're talking about... He's fighting for their rights. Now the Jewish agency, the leadership of the Yishuv in Eretz Yisrael, the chief rabbinate, none of them did that. Rabbi Levin on his own, working not in any institutional position, he got, he, he got uh, prisoner rights you know, so, you know, to, for, for these Jewish prisoners. Now the British intelligence, the, the prison wardens all liked him, they respected him, the British intelligence did not like him. They, they felt he was too close to prisoners, they suspected him. He actually did carry notes with him from family members and stuff like that and handed it to the prisoners on Shabbos morning, which could have gotten him into huge trouble. But I guess this is a miracle. He was never searched, not even one time. But British intel tried to get him fired. Uh, they tried to get him replaced. It was unsuccessful. But they were able to block him uh, from um, from visiting other prisons. He wanted to visit the prison prison in Latrun, near Beit Shemesh, where I live. He wanted to visit the prison in Akko, where a lot of underground prisoners were kept in the fortress there, which is a great museum, by the way, if you're ever in Israel, up in Akko. And uh, he even wanted to go to Sudan and Kenya, where the British were transporting political prisoners for a period of time in the 40s. He wanted to go with them there and lead them in the prisons there, and the British did not allow it. But you see how he, he knew no no boundaries, what he wanted to to do for them and and like I said, it was for criminals also. And in the 1950s, when it wasn't the British, it was the state of Israel, and there were no political prisoners there. He was still going to the prison every Shabbos and taking care of these people and being there for them, you know, when it wasn't all exciting anymore and daring under the British with, you know, stuff like that. Um, he, One of the prisoners there, is interesting, was for political, you know, he was a member of the Irgun or the Haganah, I don't remember which, was a grandson from... Religious boy, many religious boys, 
uh, were members of the underground in those days, and he was a grandson of the Sachachavar Rebbe. And the father of this fellow, who was a Sachachavar Einikel, he comes to Rabari and says, my son does not have his tefillin with him. He was arrested without his tefillin. He, can you please bring him his tefillin? He, he, how can he go? Davon, that very religious boy, and he needs his tefillin. Rabbi Levin, this is before the Rabbi Levin was able to get kosher food on a regular basis in the jail, in the early stage. And he said, to, Rabbi Levin said to him, what about food? Are you sending him food? So the father, was a sachachav or says, what's, what's important? Tefillin is important. That's what's important. Bring him his tefillin. Rabbi Levin said, tefillin is important. I'm, I agree with you, but food is also important. He's going to be hungry. And your son is very religious, and he's going to refuse to eat the non-kosher food. So he's going to be starving. So if you send him some food, I'll bring his tefillin. You don't send the food, I ain't sending any tefillin. And I'll end off with one uh, great story, one of my personal favorite in the book. All these stories come from the book, obviously. Almost all of them, I think. Um, he was not only the rabbi of the prisoners, but also Mashgiach and Eitzchayim. Eitzchayim had some uh, staff members there who didn't see it in such positive light that Rabari had such close connections with members of the underground, political prisoners who were members of the Irgun, and the Haganah, the Zionist underground who were fighting for a state. They didn't like that. He's, you know, he's too closely connected to that world, to that society. So one of the Rebbeim there decided it's either me or Rabari. One of us has to go. We both can't be teaching in this institution. He's He's an Irgun guy. He's too close with these Eitzel. Eitzel is the Irgun. Irgun Svai Lumi. That was the, the acronym for the Irgun was Eitzel. So, so he, he didn't know what to do, this Rebbe. See, this Rebbe in Eitzchayim goes to seek the advice of the Chazoin Ish in Bnei Brak. And he goes to the Chazoin Ish and asks him what to do. So the Chazoin Ish said, what do you want? Let Rebbe Aryeh be. He's a tzaddik. So this Rebbe says, okay, so maybe I should leave. I, I can't be in, in the, teaching Torah in the same place as him, so I should leave. So the Chazanish responds to him, what are you afraid of, that he'll make an Eitzelnik out of you? He didn't say Eitznik, by the way. He said Eitzelnik, which was the Irgun. So what are you scared of? He's not going to make you into one of them. He's, he takes care of them. He's a tzaddik. That's all you need to do. So this was a little bit, a little taste of Rabari Levin, in honor of our 150th episode. And again, like I said, keep your eyes out for Mishpacha magazine. Tomorrow, when it hits the stands, the Pesach issue, you'll of course want to start subscribing now. And stay safe and healthy. This was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and hopefully soon again, tours and trips. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.